Today's program is part of a special series brought to you by St. Agnes Medical Center and Every Neighborhood Partnership with funding provided by ACES Aware. Together, we are working to raise awareness about the effects of adverse childhood experiences in hopes of building a healthier community and a brighter future for our children. Dr. B explains the importance of acknowledging our stressors of the past in order to thrive in the present. Plus, she shares practical tips for coping through challenging times and building greater resiliency so you and your family can enjoy healthier and more fulfilling life. Hi, you're listening to Delusional Optimism with Dr. B, where we explore human resiliency and learn how people thrive even after adversity. We break down the complexities of the human brain so concepts are simple and relatable. It's fun and empowering to understand how your earliest experiences influence your relationships today. What makes you tick? Dr. B is a speaker, trainer, and consultant who understands emotions and human development from the inside out. Let's dive into today's episode. Here's Dr. B. Okay, so today's episode, we're going to be talking about this is your brain on drugs, ACEs and addiction. If you're interested in furthering this conversation, please email me at contact at drbconnections.com. Or if you want to know more about me, go to my website at www.drbconnections.com. All right, let's get started. So today's episode is called, This is Your Brain on Drugs, ACEs and Addiction. One of the things people often don't know about adverse childhood experiences, also known as ACEs and addiction, are that they're close friends. There's lots of things in mental health that, you know, tend to hang out together in terms of, I call them friendships, but ACEs and addiction are close friends. So Some of you may remember this commercial. If you don't, Google it, YouTube it. It was a commercial. Remember when some someone presents a couple of raw eggs and then cracks them over a hot frying pan and says, this is your brain on drugs. Any questions? And, you know, the eggs hit the frying pan very dramatically and sizzle and burn. So, heck yeah, I have a lot of questions. Drugs don't come into the world chasing people down. They're actually a response to trauma and pain. People don't always see it that way, especially at first. We want to go to blaming the drugs, but the truth is we can blame trauma. Let's walk through how this works. Let's say a child grows up in a family with some abuse or some family dysfunction. Remember, we listed out the adverse childhood experiences. There are many, many more than just the 10 listed on the ACEs screening. However, the ones listed on the ACEs screening are organized by personal abuse and by family dysfunction. So we're going we're gonna to just lead with those. I say this with loving, loving care because I honestly believe that most parents want to be good parents and try to do the best by their children. What we don't do is feel okay about talking about trauma. And when we don't talk about physically and emotionally damaging events, then that pain can get stuck in our body and in our mind. So how does that lead to addiction or substance misuse? 
Well, we live in a culture where alcohol, prescriptions, and street drugs are easily accessible. If a body or a mind, if our body or mind or our brain, if we're in pain in some way and we want to find relief, guess what? Substances can support that relief. Alcohol, drugs, nicotine. Think about how many people get stressed out and pick up a cigarette and smoke to calm down. Well, nicotine is an antidepressant and it helps people to calm when they're feeling dysregulated. So without other options, trauma treatment can quickly become an addiction. Remember the link between ACEs and depression? People with an ACE score of four or more are much more likely to suffer from depression. They're also more likely to suffer from alcoholism, IV drug use. If you don't have any adverse childhood experiences, It's highly unlikely that you're ever going to go to or be in a situation where using IV drugs seems like a good idea. So that's something that we have to really reframe our thinking about in terms of looking at why people use substances or misuse substances instead of the substances misusing people. Sometimes people don't even know that they're experiencing emotional pain because it's buried so deep in the body. It's buried so deep in our early neural pathways because really the trauma was experienced. I'm going to say this and I say it a lot, but pre-verbally. And so if you have an experience that's scary that you experienced before you had words for it, That's called a pre-verbal experience, and a pre-verbal experience can only be recorded in the body and the brain as a feeling, not a phrase. Like, oh, they were mean to me. No, we can't, that's not, that's not, we can't use words to explain it. We can only feel the feeling of how it felt when somebody was mean to the baby or the person. And that can be really scary. So we often talk about addiction as if it's rooted in the actual drug. We blame the opioid crisis on big pharma. And I'm not saying that big pharma doesn't play a role, but the truth is that trauma is the real cause of addiction. Avoidance of pain, low self-esteem, the inability to relieve emotional pain is at the root of addiction. Once a person finds a substance that reduces the problem, then guess what? The cycle of misuse begins. We're not good at talking about drug use. In fact, there's a commercial on TV right now where two guys, like kind of middle-aged guys, are sitting in a coffee shop, and one of them starts talking about his past heroin use. And it's a drugs.com commercial, and it says exactly that. We're not used to talking about drugs. Yeah, right. We're not. We don't we don't often sit down and people talk about, you know, the illegal drug use that they have experienced or even the legal drug use or misuse that they've experienced. We're just not comfortable talking about that. And we're even worse about talking about the trauma that leads to the need to self-medicate in the first place. So we need to learn and we probably need to teach people how to talk about drug use because that conversation will lead to discussing trauma. 
We often view substance misuse as a weakness in character, but really it's a self-care resource. If you're struggling with pain, fear, anxiety, depression, these kinds of deep feelings that make it impossible to do your work or to concentrate, but then you find a substance that relieves some of that tension, guess what? You found a resource. It's not necessarily an appropriate one. However, if it works, people will use it. There are lots of substances available in our society, like alcohol. You know, it's not an illegal drug. It's an available drug. Nicotine. We sell cigarettes. We don't sell them to children. We have age limits on these kinds of substances. However, they're accessible and often available in people's homes. So I can't tell you the number of times that people have told me that as young as seven years old, they started drinking alcohol and smoking in their home with their parents' alcohol cabinet or cigarettes out of their parents' purse or cupboard or whatever. These are gateways to much more dangerous addictive solutions to trauma. Street drugs, sexual promiscuity, dangerous or risky behavior sometimes that include crime. But if we don't have sort of a stop button and we use a drug that impedes our inhibition or impedes our good judgment, then people tend to participate in more risky behaviors. And when you participate in more risky behaviors, what then can possibly happen? Injury or death. So we have to start talking about drug use. We have to talk about it in relation to and concerning trauma. So let's jump into some of the neuroscience and a personal experience that I had. families are touched by addiction, including mine. I've had to understand the roots of trauma in my own family. It was this journey and exploration that helped me understand addiction and why people misuse substances. Healing is real and it is possible. It's also really hard. Someone I love so much has overcome a significant addiction. So this is super relevant to me. I was not part of his healing in this area. There's a reason that doctors don't treat their family members. It's impossible, and frankly, it's irresponsible. We're all part of a bigger story within our own family, and we need to honor the experience and perspective of our childhood before we can heal from the wounds of trauma. I hope this makes sense. So... Because of my experience, there's a phrase sort of in the mental health community called the wounded healer, and I view myself sort of as a wounded healer. I don't live and dwell in my trauma. However, I do have some trauma, and what that trauma has taught me or created in me, it's made me be a highly sensitive person to other people's trauma. I can almost see a story before it's being told. This is because of three things. First, it comes from my own personal resilience, which I credit mostly to my older brother and sister. And second, to my own neurobiology of survival. So there were times in my life and in my early childhood and infancy where things were not necessarily safe. And so guess what? My brain wired for survival because guess what? 
everybody's brain is in service of survival. So my neurobiology is highly sensitive to being aware of dangerous situations or threat. Everyone's brains really are, but some people's are just more highly tuned into it earlier. Third, my deep understanding of trauma and resilience earned and learned from my own personal therapy, education, and training. So I'm not the clinical psychologist who believes that we can do our own work. I really truly believe that everybody should have access and the ability to do some formal version of therapy and mental health work as just part of being human because we need to make sense out of our lives in order to grow and be the best selves that we can be. We can stop cycles of generational trauma and heal, but we're going to be talking about that in an upcoming episode. So here's a personal story about addiction. On Thanksgiving Day, I was driving home after meeting my daughter. I was dropping some stuff off to her. And I passed a woman naked from the waist down on the highway ramp, sorting through some clothes near her shopping cart. My heart sank. I couldn't just ignore the situation, but at the same time, I knew that I couldn't change this woman's situation in any meaningful way by stopping. I got off the freeway, I drove back around, I re-entered freeway on-ramp, and I stopped. I asked her if I could help. I could see her humanity and her multi-generational wounds of trauma, abuse, family dysfunction, and total societal failure. It was written all over this situation. She was surprised that someone could see her as a person. I knew immediately that she was homeless, had addictions, and was surviving but not thriving. She was confused. She recognized the opportunity of me stopping and was grateful for my help. A McDonald's meal, a Big Mac with extra Mac sauce, $11 in cash, and a ride to a shelter. At the same time, I could see where she stopped growing and maturing. Even though she was 31 years old, which she shared with me in our conversation, she presented more like a 13-year-old. When I would not take her to my house, she turned on me in a young, manipulative way and said, if you're not going to help me, then why did you stop? She was right. I could not help her, not because I didn't want to help her, but because she needed much more than I had to give even with all my training and experience. This woman is the consequence of all of us not talking about drugs and not dealing with trauma early. I don't like to believe that there are irreparable consequences to trauma, but that's the truth. That's the reality. When trauma is pervasive and occurs early in life, the brain and the stress regulating system are so compromised that they can be beyond healing. She said to me, can you just buy me some E&J brandy? I have to calm down and think. This is how substances become the healing component because the brain cannot soothe the body. So she needed brandy, she needed alcohol in order to reduce the level of anxiety in her system, her stress response system, in order to plan and navigate her next moves in life. 
from a shelter. So that's just one example. If you just open your eyes as you drive around and you look at people and you recognize homeless people on the street, you'll see the story behind the situation. People aren't just out panhandling for money because they want alcohol because it's such a fun party drug. They are out there panhandling for alcohol to self-medicate their pain and trauma from earlier life experiences. Oh my goodness, I always get to this point. I get to this section called optimism and resilience and I think, oh my gosh, how is this optimistic? Really? Delusional optimism? You are not a delusional optimist. Yes, yes, yes I am. I've spent many, many hours since Thanksgiving Day thinking about my interaction with this woman on the highway. I couldn't save her, and I had to maintain my own boundaries to keep myself safe. I wasn't scared of her, but I was so sad, and I actually have been sad about this for days. Resilience means the ability to overcome adversity. That means setting healthy boundaries and not getting sucked into the dysfunction that leads to perpetuating even more trauma. My own resilience had allowed me to set a boundary with this person because there was no way that I had the capacity to help her in the long, long term. So I think of it like this, and I think of other experiences about optimism and resilience like this too. I want a better life for this person, but I can't make her life better. She has to do that. If I tried to take over and manage her life for her, that would be an abandonment of my own boundaries and an act of complete codependence. So this exchange between this person and I on the freeway in a very random act was just an experience in humanity. What she got from me and what I got from her was very short-lived and a short experience, but hopefully that can live as a glimmer of hope for her that people aren't all bad. And for me, it's a reminder that we have a lot of work to do. So it was fulfilling to me to meet a basic, minimal human need for someone. And I saw this woman, even if it was just for a short time, I was able to give her a glimpse into the world that she matters. And mattering is so important. The concept of belonging. It's hard to hold on to if you think about it. But resilience is real, and we create change by investing in the earliest parts of life. This is how we fight addiction. All right, so this is the optimism in me in this episode. It's a little hard to piece through because this is a heavier story. However, The optimism is that we know how to do this. We can do better, and we are doing better. We're investing in early childhood and in trauma treatment in ways that we've never done before. And we're looking at addiction through a different lens, and we're looking at intergenerational trauma through different lenses. So we are on a path to building a more resilient community and world. No one sets out to misuse drugs or alcohol or become homeless. They're fighting pain and become addicted to numbing the painful emotions that come from trauma. So what we can do is 
we can work on this on a daily basis just by thinking about it, by having brave conversations that scare us but need to be talked about in relation to drug use, alcoholism, misuse of alcohol, and other things that we know have roots in trauma. Now, don't do this when you're in, you know, a public place. Make sure that when you have these conversations that it's a safe setting and it's an appropriate setting. But try to just start having those compassionate conversations. That's the optimism. That's how we start to build resilience. And that's what makes me optimistic about the future. All right, so let's move into some actionable takeaways. Remember, 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 remember that addiction is a consequence of trauma. So finding some compassion is essential. But that doesn't mean that you ever have to accept abuse. So sometimes substance misuse comes with physical, emotional, or sexual abuse. That you do not have to accept. But recognizing that addiction comes from trauma is viewing it through a compassionate window. All right, talking to children early about drug use with friends and with families. Hey, what do you think you would do in this situation? Hey, have you ever met anybody who smoked weed? Oh, have you ever met anybody who, you know, really didn't have control over their use of alcohol? These are hard conversations to have with a seven-year-old or an eight-year-old or a nine-year-old. But if you wait until 13, 14, 15, there is a good chance that somebody that you're talking to has already started using alcohol or drugs long before the conversation started. So especially if there's trauma, if there's a trauma history in the family. So the third one is recognize if someone in your family misused drugs or alcohol. If that's true, you may yourself have some codependent behaviors. So what I want to say to that is we're not going to talk about codependence here today. We might have an episode about it eventually, but grab a book on codependency and learn how to set healthy boundaries for yourself. It won't always feel good, but it will be right for you. And I am I can almost say with 100% certainty that if you were raised with somebody who was an alcoholic or somebody who misused drugs during your childhood that you will resonate with the concepts of codependency. And it's and it's self healing and validating to explore that for yourself and with yourself. All right, number four. People do overcome addiction. People overcome really, really significantly hard addictions. Heroin, methamphetamine, alcoholism, nicotine. People overcome addiction, but it requires retraining the brain and building a new set of neural pathways to rely on safety, stability, and security. If you know somebody who's overcome an addiction like this, pat them on the back because it was not easy. That I can tell you. We need to treat the cause of trauma, not the symptoms of addiction. And we may treat symptoms of addiction along the way, but at the end of the day, we want to treat the cause of trauma because that's what leads to people becoming addicted. 
And if we only treat the symptoms of addiction, then we never get at the real root of the problem. And like I said, often the roots of those traumas are early childhood and are buried deep within our unconscious. And what that means is when I say unconscious, I often also sort of refer to that as the pre-verbal because it's the period of time that we're not able to talk about those traumas because they're just feelings. So lastly, number five, addiction is buried. Oh, I just said this. Addiction is buried in the unconscious mind, meaning it's wired in the neural pathways of early childhood. So how do we access the unconscious mind? It's not right there in the forefront of our rational brain or our cognitive thinking brain. It's deeper in our unconscious limbic system brain. And so there's three ways that people can really access that deep, deep hurt. And mindfulness is getting a lot of play right now, and, and, and rightly so, because mindfulness is one of the ways to go deeply into the body and the mind and to disperse and to release trauma. Another way is through hypnosis, a little less popular, not as easily accessible as learning how to be mindful and to do mindfulness training. However, a very powerful, useful practice with somebody who's highly trained. And the third one is through prayer. There is a lot of research out there that actually shows that people who are deeply spiritual can use prayer to access their unconscious mind. And so with that, think. I just want you to think about this. I want you to feel about this and know that if somebody that you love or you yourself are struggling with addiction, that there's hope and that you can get help and can heal and that we are on a path to building a more resilient community and world And we do that by communicating in loving ways with each other. So with that, I love you. Go out and leave a life print. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. I appreciate the opportunity to connect with you. If you're interested in booking a training, I'd love to hear from you. You can reach me at my website, Dr. B Connections. There's a big button that says, book a training with Dr. B. It's that easy. If this show has been beneficial for you, please share it with your friends and family. Spreading the word about the show helps us grow our audience and helps continue to change the world together. Again, thanks so much for listening to Delusional Optimism. Now, go leave a life print. Thank you for listening to this special episode of Delusional Optimism brought to you by St. Agnes Medical Center and Every Neighborhood Partnership. We hope you're encouraged by Dr. B's message and find her tips helpful for managing life stressors and building a more resilient self. For more episodes in this special series, please visit St. Agnes Medical Center's website at www.samc.com. This episode is produced and published by the editing team at TruthWork Media. TruthWork Media is a full-fledged podcasting and social media agency located in South Bend, Indiana with clients all around the world. For more information, visit them at truthworkmedia.com.
These materials and all discussions of these materials are for educational purposes only and do not constitute medical or mental health advice. The presenter is not a licensed mental health or medical service provider. If you need medical or mental health care or advice, you should contact your doctor or therapist, or you can contact your insurance company for a referral. This show and all of its contents are copyright 2020 Dr. B. Leave a Life Print. Reproduction or use requires written consent of Dr. Kristen Beasley.